Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As I speak, some two million Americans are behind bars. The United States' rate of incarceration is the highest in the world. Why and how did this happen? Mark Maurer's Race to Incarcerate, first published in 1999, has become an important text for understanding the growth of the U.S. prison system and a canonical work for those active in the U.S. criminal justice reform movement. Now, Sabrina Jones, a graphic artist, member of the World War III Illustrated Collective and an author of politically engaged comics, has collaborated with Maurer to adapt and update the original book into a comics narrative designed to reach new audiences. Jones' artwork adds uh, to the complex story of how uh, four decades of prison expansion and its effects on generations of Americans. The new book is entitled Race to Incarcerate, a graphic retelling. My guests for the hour are Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones. The program follows the news. Support for Access Utah comes from the Utah Humanities Council, enriching cultural, intellectual, and civic life by providing opportunities for all Utahns to explore life's most engaging questions and the wonders of the human experience. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As I speak, more than two million Americans are behind bars. The United States' rate of incarceration is the highest in the world. Why and how did this happen? We'll be exploring that on the program today. Mark Maurer's Race to Incarcerate, first published in 1999, has become an important text for understanding the growth of the U.S. prison system and a canonical work for those active in the U.S. criminal justice reform movement. Now Sabrina Jones, a member of the World War III Illustrated Collective and a author of politically engaged comics, has collaborated with Maurer to adapt and update the original book into a comics narrative designed to reach new audiences. Jones' artwork adds to the complex story of four decades of prison expansion and its effect on generations of Americans. The new book is entitled Race to Incarcerate, a Graphic Retelling. Mark Maurer is executive director of the Sentencing Project. He'll appear at Willer Bookworks in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening. And Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones uh, join me for the hour on today's program. And uh, Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank Good you. to be here. Let me uh, start with how, how this uh, retelling uh, happened. Mark Maurer, did you approach Sabrina Jones? Where did this idea come from? Well, it's an interesting story. Uh, the second edition of the book was published in 2006, and we had received a, a foundation grant to do some free dissemination to groups that wouldn't uh, normally have access to the book. And so this included a number of people in prison, uh, one of whom was a prisoner in Connecticut, uh, got a copy, and several years later I, I received in the mail a uh, selection of comic, draw, comic book drawings that he had done from the first chapter of the book. He was sort of telling the story of the book and telling his own story of being in prison. And I looked at that and said, well, that's pretty cool, and showed it to my editor in New York, and she thought it was very cool as well, and said, you know, we should make this into a graphic novel. That would be a nice way to tell the story. And so uh, they sought out uh, my, my colleague Sabrina, and then she was able to translate this into a, a whole different way of telling the story. And what did you think, Sabrina, when you were approached on this project? Well, I knew that this was going to be a challenge, but something I would be ultimately very proud to have contributed to. Um, this is something uh, that I had, I had been educated a little bit about prison issues uh, by the same person who I think reached out to the prisoner in Connecticut, uh, Lois Ahrens of Real Cost of Prisons had hired me a few years earlier to do a uh, short, very short comic book that's kind of an activist tool called Prisoners of the War on Drugs. So I had been introduced to the issue, and uh, I had also worked with uh, the New Press on a book called uh, a graphic adaptation of Studs Terkel's Working. So they were familiar with my work there. I'd been doing for the last couple of decades, uh, comics on various political issues. And um, a lot of it falls into the kind of journalism and opinion and radical history uh, uh, taglines. But this was something that I felt was so much a part of an issue right now that's that ought to be at a tipping point that has gotten so much uh, consensus within the movement and yet is so little known 
by people who are outside of it, by people who are not affected by it. So many, let's, let's put it bluntly, so many white people I talk to don't realize how enormous our population in prison is and how radically out of scale it is with any other civilization on Earth. Mark Maurer, do you agree with that, the, the, an awareness gap? Well, yes, I think so. Uh, I, I think the good news is that increasingly, I think, uh, these issues are becoming known to a wider public. Uh, part of this is due to the fiscal crisis of recent years, where uh, governors of both parties now recognize that the cost of corrections is eating into support for higher education and other vital services. Uh, I think the excesses of the war on drugs are becoming more well-known to people. Uh, you know, most Americans have someone close to them uh, who's had problems with alcohol or, or drug abuse. And so I think there's a greater understanding now uh, that uh, substance abuse, uh, in many respects, you know, is treated as a public health problem. So why are we employing incarceration in such large numbers? So I think there is a growing, uh, I don't want to say consensus, but a growing understanding uh, among Americans that, uh, you know, we, we may have gone much too far in our out of balance in our public safety approach uh, by using incarceration so much. Uh, the challenge now, though, is how do we start to actualize that and actually to, I think, scale back the, the use of incarceration in, in favor of some more constructive approaches of prevention and treatment instead. I wonder if you could um, give us the, the comparison. Uh, the, the, we know that the uh, United States rate of incarceration is highest in the world by how much? What, what, mm -hmm. what are some comparative numbers? Well, just, I mean, starting back in 1970, there were a little over 300,000 people in prisoner jail in the U.S. Today, that figure is more than 2 million. So we've had a 600% rise. Uh, if you compare the U.S. with other industrialized nations, Canada, Western Europe, we incarcerate our citizens at a rate anywhere from five to eight times the rate of those other nations. Now, some of that is explained by the fact we do have a higher rate of violent crime in the U.S., but it's nowhere near a five or eight times factor. You know, much of it is really a function of policy choices, basically what's come to be known as the get tough movement. And, you know, get tough movement is meant we will get tough on crime by sending more people to prison and keeping them there for longer periods of time. So it's been a fairly conscious strategy, but it's, uh, the, the outcome is that you know, we lead the world by a huge margin in our commitment to incarceration. Hmm. I wonder if we could go back and, and take a look at the, the history of incarceration as punishment. This is fairly new, isn't it, relatively? Well, relatively speaking, uh, I mean, actually, the... Um, you know, a prison, the penitentiary, uh, was a, a model uh, invention of sorts uh, in the U.S. Uh, Quakers in Pennsylvania and other religious reformers, you know, first began the penitentiary, coming from the word penitence, and the idea some 200 years ago was uh, it, it was a reform idea at the time, in contrast to the sort of harsh physical punishments and putting people in the stocks and things like that. You would take sinners and keep them in these institutions, uh, and they would consider the errors of their ways, essentially. And, well, you know, the problem was by isolating people in cells and in virtual solitary confinement, it turned out that was not a very good strategy for mm -hmm. helping people to integrate in their communities. Uh, so we've had the prisons for well over 200 years. Uh, up until 1970, our use of imprisonment was higher than other countries, but not tremendously higher, and is really in the mid-70s and then ramping up in the 1980s with the inception of the war on drugs that we started to see this very rapid increase in the population, uh, enormous costs of both prison construction and housing uh, taking place really all across the country until today. And before we get into and that's how the... Uh... That's how the book opens. Uh, here, the graph, uh, race to incarcerate, a graphic retelling. The, the this explosion began in the in the nineteen seventies. Before we get into that, uh, 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 Sabrina Jones, I, I wonder mm -hmm. what what you learned about that the history of incarceration. I, I learned some things uh, uh, I reading had, the book. It was interesting 
because the first uh, building that I drew, of all the many prisons that I had to draw for this book, the first one was Eastern State Penitentiary uh, in Philadelphia, my hometown. And it's, in fact, a museum now um, as a historic site in the development of the idea of the penitentiary. And I had been to it beforehand, uh, and it's a very haunting place um, because of that that sense of of endless solitary that they were uh, they were suggesting to me it really underlines the idea that any type of um, moral uh, conversion cannot happen in an atmosphere of coercion and this is a problem in any religious thinking whether in prison or not now that people need freedom to come to their own uh, moral uh, awakenings but what we've learned also since then is that the you know solitary is a form of torture and that it drives people insane. So now people are learning to, to try to fight solitary as a form of cruel and unusual punishment. Hmm. It just goes to show how much we have to um, keep redressing our reforms, whatever they may be, whatever uh, their original intentions may be. Before we get into this uh, skyrocketing of, uh, of uh, incarceration um, in the last four decades or so, uh, Sabrina Jones, uh, are there specific problems taking a book like Mark Maurer's and making it into a graphic form? I, I assume you can't put everything in because you have uh, No, you cannot. Number one is that make room for the pictures. You've got to cut some words. <laughs> so, But this is something I enjoy, which is... Uh, uh, word editing, trying to distill down to the most concise uh, version of something. And so I would first attack it that way, trying to, like, cull out the essential parts of each chapter and, and, and radically uh, cut it down. And then Mark would come back and say, uh, you know, if I had twisted the meaning of something, he would correct that. So um, we worked back and forth that way. But often the way that I think is in images. So I would, you know, write a little and, and, and find what images came to mind. Uh, the biggest challenge was just the sheer enormity of the numbers. And me, alas, I am not a numbers person. So perhaps uh, I am a good person to translate numbers into images because I, I would struggle to get my mind around uh, the numbers and find a way that that, that image um, could be made accessible to the enumerate like myself. Mm. Um, there's a there, there are two sort of strategies in illustration where you directly uh, do a narrative depiction, a, a literal illustration, and then there are the kind of symbolic and metaphorical approaches, a conceptual illustration, which has recently been dubbed uh, data visualization also. So there are places where, um, I mean, most saliently on the cover, the, the whole system becomes a monster. And there's this mouth, this kind of devouring hell mouth that is the prison gates. Um, it is um, that's always something that's fun to draw that enlivens the page. <laughs> but I didn't want to just go all sci-fi either, because we're talking about real people here, and we're talking about humanity and society. So often my approach was, how can I introduce faces? How can I humanize the numbers? And I did try to um, use as much sense from people I know or people from photo research. Um, one of the obstacles for me in this um, initially was that everything I was learning about incarceration was from other people's research. And so I had a little bit of an inferiority complex about my, the secondhand quality of my experience. Um, so I decided that I had to go to prison just for me in order to feel a kind of, uh, you know, possession of the material, a kind of identification with that experience. Um, so I started asking around what was the best way to, uh, to get in, and, you know, people say, oh, you can teach a class, but that seemed like it would take almost as much time as, as doing the book. So um, I, I wound up uh, joining a Quaker worship group at a prison on Staten Island, and uh, because I'm a member of, a, of the Quaker um, Religious Society of Friends, I knew people that were in it, and I was pretty easily able to get in there. And, um, and I spent several Saturday afternoons sitting uh, in a classroom inside a medium security facility uh, with some people who had been worshiping with Quakers for many years 
and some had initiated this this group. Um, and for me, that just knowing people that I could get to know a little bit and uh, put a face, a personal face, on the idea of people spending so many years in prison, uh, it helped me to be able to put some heart as well as uh, some mind into the images. Mark Maurer, what what do you think of uh, Sprint's images? How, how did this version of your book impact you? Well, it's intriguing because, uh, you know, as, as any of my friends can tell you, there are few people who have less artistic talent than I do, and that's why I hooked up with Sabrina. Uh, and what was intriguing to me, uh, you know, Sabrina described the collaboration, and sometimes she would send me a chapter, and, you know, I'd look at it very carefully and think about it. And, and there are moments from time to time when I'd read one of the captions or look at the illustration and say, you know, did I really say that in the book? And I, I went back to the book, and sure enough, she was very faithful to the tone of the book and what we're trying to say, but the way it comes across and the imagery and the emotion that's attached to it um, just gives it a very different feel. And so, um, so I learned a lot too in the process of working this through. And you know, uh, I'm a sort of person who writes uh, text and research, and I enjoy doing the data analysis. I think it's important to make our points. Uh, but in many respects, you know, this sort of rounds it out and, and gives a different feel to how we convey information, how we convey, you know, insight into the problem. So, uh, so I learned a lot in the process myself of going through this. I must say I'm, I'm so impressed with Mark's discipline uh, in the way he states things uh, because there's a, there's a restraint and an adherence to the facts that is very impressive, and it's very nice for me as an artist to be able to work upon that foundation. Um, if he were to do what I do with words, you might call it sensationalizing, um, but because of his restraint and discipline, we've got a solid foundation of fact, and the layer that, uh, of, of drama that my art adds is still based upon fact. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Mark Maurer, Executive Director of the Sentencing Project, and Sabrina Jones, a graphic artist, uh, part of the World War III Illustrated uh, Collective. Um, and Mark Maurer's important book, Race to Incarcerate, which was first published in 1999, has now been uh, rendered into a comics narrative form, and it's called now Race to Incarcerate, a graphic retelling. And we're talking about the United States rate of incarceration, highest in the world. We're going to get into how this skyrocketed uh, from the early 70s onward and what this means for not only for the prisoners involved, but for our society uh, as a whole. And how do we approach crime and punishment and rehabilitation? These questions uh, coming up with Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones uh, following a break. should say that Mark Maurer is uh, going to appear at Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. More following break. Support for Access Utah comes from Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Are you an introvert? At least one-third of the people we know are people who prefer listening to speaking and reading to partying. I'm Jim Fleming. Next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge, Susan Cain tells us how much our extroverted culture undervalues introverts and how much we lose by doing so. It's To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRI, Public Radio International. Sunday mornings at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, did you hear car talk last week? And you expect your, your mother, yeah. as a novice driver, to drive on the interstate with semis zipping by her on both sides <laughs> at 80 miles an hour. Well, uh, you know. You know. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's perfectly okay. Uh, I was just asking. Well, is your mother going to leave you a lot of money? <laughs> <laughs> Don't miss the fun this week. Join us for car talk. Saturday mornings at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thank you. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a new book or an updating a book, Race to Incarcerate, a Graphic Retelling. This is an updating in graphic form of Mark Maurer's 1999 book, Race to Incarcerate, illustrating how and why the United States rate of incarceration is the highest in the world, what effect this has on our society, and uh, in uh, Mr. Maurer's view, what uh, can be done. We'll be getting into that. Uh, Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones are my guests for the hour. You're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or you can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. First uh, page in the book uh, talks about the number of prisoners in the United States. Uh, you say it was stable for most of the 20th century, began to rise in the early 1970s, and skyrocketed for the next four decades. And Sabrina Jones has this in this exponential growth in graphic form with uh, prisoners in, in their cells. Uh, Mark Maurer, why did this skyrocket? Well, in the early part of that rise, uh, there was an increase in crime uh, from the mid-60s to the mid-70s. Some of this was due to the baby boom generation coming of age, you know, all things being equal. Young men, the age group 15 to 24, committed a disproportionate amount of crime, uh, and some other factors increasing urbanization. But since about 1980, uh, almost all of the change has been uh, a result of change in policy not crime rates. Uh, a couple of examples, uh, uh, about half the states now have some type of three strikes in your out policy. Uh, basically, in your third serious felony, you can get up to a life sentence in prison. Uh, California has by far the most extreme policy uh, under its, its laws. Your third strike can be any felony. And so when this was challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court in 2003, uh, the two cases that came to the court uh, and won a man's third strike was stealing three golf clubs from a sporting goods store. Uh, the other one was a man who had stolen $153 worth of videotapes from a Kmart store. Uh, the court rejected their contention this is cruel and unusual punishment and essentially said if this is what the legislators in California believe is necessary for public safety, we're not going to second-guess their judgment. So the golf club thief got a sentence of 25 to life, and the videotape thief a sentence of 50 to life. Uh, now, these, this law has been on the books for about 18 years now. It's just this past November in the election in California, there was actually a ballot proposal to scale back the reach of the law so that crimes like this would not necessarily be covered uh, as a third strike. But this was, you know, a, an indication of the extremes to which policies have sometimes gone in imposing, you know, uh, excessively lengthy prison terms on not necessarily the most serious offenders. Of course, uh, the, this getting tough on crime, perhaps not good policy, but certainly good politics. Well, it certainly is. And, you know, just to be clear, um, you know, there are people in prison who've committed very serious crimes who present a threat to public safety. Uh, and, you know, it's understandable that we need to restrain some people for some period of time for public safety purposes. Um, it, what's happened for many years is that political leaders of both major parties, uh, in many cases, try to outdo themselves by talking about how tough they could be on crime, and for a long time they viewed that as uh, a no-brainer in election campaigns. Uh, you could never sound too tough on crime in their judgment, and, and many of them were correct You know, for a number of those years. Uh, I think in recent years that uh, is beginning to change. There's now a growing recognition that uh, sending record numbers of people to prison cells and doing very little with them while they're there uh, is not a good recipe for public safety. When people come back home from prison after having been gone two years or five years or ten, 
many of these people had limited uh, educational attainment, vocational skills. You know, unless we uh, take care of some of those gaps, uh, we're almost setting people up for an endless cycle of going in and out. And that's both expensive in fiscal terms, and it doesn't really help to make the rest of us any safer. So I think we're seeing some shift in the climate on that now, uh, both in, in the legislatures and in, in the courtrooms as well. Is there anything statistically or, uh, you know, to, to support this uh, policy? You've talked about the, the, the politics of it and the, the politicians out doing each other and getting tough on crime, but uh, is there a correlation between high incarceration rates and lowering of uh, crime rates, so that sort of thing, and cause and effect? Yeah, well, prison has some effect, you know, but I think it, it's fairly broad consensus among people who study these things now that we're very much past the point of diminishing returns for public safety. And there are many reasons for that, but one of them regards who we incarcerate in prison. You know, if we had 100 prison cells and the only people we put there were serial rapists, we could say, well, at least we're having some effect on this particular problem. But as the prison system has expanded, increasingly we're incarcerating people for less serious offenses, you know, just tens of thousands of low-level drug offenders, increasingly uh, lower-level property offenders. So we may prevent some crimes uh, in some of those cases, but we're doing it at a cost uh, about $25,000 a year in incarceration. So the real question is not so much uh, do we put people in prison or do nothing, but rather if we have a finite public safety budget, um, how much should be in prison, how much should be in drug treatment, how much should be in preschool education, how much in policing? You know, we could debate what that mix looks like. I think right now we've gone so much uh, uh, towards an imbalance in the approach to the, the deep end of the system of prison that it's really robbing resources from uh, those other approaches to public safety. We do have an email. Uh, this is from Joseph in Green River. I think it fits uh, here nicely. Uh, this is what Joseph says. It's readily apparent that the three strikes law is not working as a deterrence. Yes, those who are addicted need help, but shouldn't they also have to take personal responsibility for their actions? They've made the decision to do illegal activity that does affect other people. Where's the justice for people who are affected? What is your formula so that mercy does not rob justice? Well, I think absolutely people need to be held accountable for their actions. And no matter how challenging one's life circumstances are, you know, we all have responsibility. Um, I think we can do that, though, in a variety of ways. And taking, <clears throat> becoming accountable does not always have to take place in a prison cell. Uh, you know, there are many programs around the country designed to have offenders make restitution to victims, perform community service work as a way to give back to the community. Um, you know, if we just punish people for the sake of punishment, uh, it may make us feel good in our gut, but it doesn't necessarily help victims. It doesn't necessarily uh, mean that that person is going to be uh, a better prospect for living in the community. So I think we can combine accountability uh, with uh, helping victims and also reducing the prospects that somebody will keep coming back into the court system. If you just... I think we have to remember yes, go ahead. That a high percentage of people arrested in the war on drugs are for relatively less harmful drugs like marijuana, and we really need to question whether we are protecting society by locking people up for using a drug that may be less harmful than tobacco or alcohol. Yes, I want to, uh, if you just joined us, uh, we are talking with uh, the authors of a uh, new book, Race to Incarcerate, a graphic retelling. This is a graphic updating of Mark Maurer's Race to Incarcerate, and uh, the artist is Sabrina Jones. We're talking with Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones. Mark Maurer is executive director of the Sentencing Project. He'll appear at Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock, if you'd like to hear more on this subject and, and meet Mr. Maurer. Uh, I'd like to uh, take a look at the the effects of this high incarceration rate and some of these tough-on-crime laws uh, on a personal level, and then maybe take it out to uh, the effect on society. I know, Sabrina Jones, you, I believe you you expanded uh, Mark Maurer's section on Kemba Smith. 
I did. In fact, she was mentioned briefly in the book, and I learned a little bit more about her on the Sentencing Project's website and found uh, a bunch of article, other articles about her experience. She was she is a, a woman who, uh, as a college student, got involved with a uh, drug dealer, her boyfriend. She didn't do drugs herself, and uh, but living with him, being involved in what was also an abusive relationship. Um, she did errands, drove him places, uh, received gifts from him that uh, ultimately, when he was killed, probably by someone else in the drug trade, um, all of the charges that would have been pressed against him landed on Kemba. And so at, at age 24, she was accepting responsibility for her partial involvement with his activities. But she had no idea that because of the mandatory sentencing for anyone who conspires with a drug dealer, she would get over 24 years sentence. Um, so I picked her story to illustrate because it so seems to indicate what is wrong with the uh, rigidity of mandatory sentencing, that this young woman was not paying anyone back by wasting 25 years in prison. With her, there is a, there's an unusual happy ending that her sentence was commuted to time served after almost seven years um, towards at the, in the final days of Bill Clinton's presidency. So she is now out and rebuilding her life and working as an activist, both to challenge the wisdom of mandatory sentences and to help young women learn to avoid being victims of violent relationships. Um, but this is something I, I felt like, as an, as an artist, I felt like this would be a powerful story to, to provide an individual story, a kind of traditional story that you read about one person's encounter with the system, because so much of the book is the big picture of society. Um, so my eye was always to find individual stories that would be effective. But Kemba seemed very apropos because of the, the proportion of her, uh, her sentence was so disproportionate to her alleged crimes, and um, because as a woman she represents a very, the very fastest growing segment of the prison population, and as an abused woman she represented the majority of women who are in prison, and as a woman who's incarcerated because of her relationship to another person's crimes, her uh, domestic partner, um, that is also very typical of women in the prison system. Mark Maurer, I wonder, you've told a couple of stories, and we just heard the Kemba Smith story, and for these individual people, this is a horrible thing. I wonder about society as a whole. What is the harm to society with this high incarceration rate and the current policies? Well, first, I think, you know, there is something, something fundamentally flawed when uh, in the United States uh, we're the wealthiest society in the world, society that prides itself on democratic uh, traditions, and the fact that we're the world's leading uh, incarcerator, uh, that doesn't feel right, I think. And, you know, whether one believes that this is a result of individual failings or societal failings, uh, you know, I think we should all be very disturbed that this is an area in which, you know, we punish more than any other nation does. So I, I think there's a, a broad sense there. Um, I think uh, for far too long many people have thought that uh, prisons were out of sight, out of mind. They didn't need to deal with it. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, many people increasingly learning that, um, you know, uh, the prisons have become revolving doors in many ways. And if we really care about public safety, we need to care about uh, what happens to people before before prison and after prison. Uh, you know, it's uh, hitting home in many respects. Uh, you know, it, in the fiscal crisis, parents who are sending their kids to uh, the local state university and, you know, seeing tuition increases of 5 or 10% a year, uh, you know, in many states, uh, a good portion of tuition increases really due to the fact that the cost of corrections has gone up so much. Um, you know, I've often said, only half-jokingly, that when parents get a, a bill for tuition with an increase, there should be a little slip in there that points out how much of that increase is going to uh, the construction of new prisons in the state, because that's exactly what the trade-off looks like. So I think, 
you know, we need to have a broader conversation about, you know, where do we want to be a generation from now? Uh, do we want to be building prisons? Do we want to be building college classrooms? You know, what do those choices look like uh, rather than making those decisions in isolation? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, what I'm sure is one of the meanings of the title, Race to Incarcerate, the inequity among races in, in rates of incarceration. Well, we see, you know, very dramatic uh, disparities there, particularly for African-Americans. Uh, you know, African-Americans are incarcerated roughly six times the rate of whites, uh, Latinos about uh, twice the rate of whites. Um, this is a complicated story. Um, some of what looks like racial differences in involvement in crime, in fact, uh, is much more a function of social class and the uh, sort of disadvantages of concentrated poverty that need to be addressed. Uh, but there's also, you know, no shortage of problems within the justice system that have been contributing to this. Uh, you know, in recent years, we've seen, unfortunately, too much documentation of racial profiling by some police officers where... People of color are stopped uh, not on suspicion of committing crime, but because uh, they're of a certain race, and, uh, and, and police officers decide to see what they can find out. Uh, we see an overlap of race and class disadvantages, anywhere from you know what is the your access to make bail and get out of jail before your trial, uh, your access to a reasonable defense lawyer, to treatment programs that might serve as an alternative to prison. Um, and unfortunately, there's a good deal of research evidence that shows that decision-making by prosecutors or judges or juries can often result in racial bias in sentencing and charging as well, not necessarily conscious in all cases, but, but clearly outcomes, anywhere from the death penalty to more common felonies in the courtroom. And I wonder if this does lead to a gap in awareness of, of, about the, the you know, high rates of incarceration and the and and what our what our system is is doing rightly or wrongly, Sabrina Jones. I think it was you earlier in the program who said that uh, you've noticed an, an awareness gap. Uh, certainly, that's the way it seems to me. Just in the unscientific sample of my personal experience with people I'm talking to, um, but I think it's also worth noting, as it's pointed out in the book, that the societies that have um, the lowest uh, reliance on punitive responses to crime are the more racially homogeneous societies like Scandinavia and states with, with less uh, racial diversity. So I think it really challenges us to address racism per se if we're going to be able to let go of these um, racial, uh, or take apart these racial biases which uh, have infected the entire system. Um, it seems that um, that's that's always going to be a big challenge in America, isn't it? And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this after a break, and uh, we're going to get to solutions, what uh, Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones uh, think are good solutions uh, to this problem and, uh, and response to, to crime in general. Uh, the book is Race to Incarcerate, a graphic retelling. Mark Maurer is executive director of the Sentencing Project. He'll be appearing at Weller, Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening, 7 o'clock. And Sabrina Jones, a graphic artist uh, who uh, put Race to Incarcerate, the 1999 book, into a graphic form. Um, and Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones, my guests for the hour, another uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And you're welcome to join the conversation if you'd like at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. you have a personal experience here, perhaps, uh, yourself or among your family, or uh, ideas on the subject, 1-800-826-1495, or you can get to us at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'll be back following the break. Waste not. Install a rain sensor on your irrigation controller so your system won't run when it's raining. Also, install water-wise fixtures and appliances. Waste not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org/publicworks. This week in this American life. 
The whole national conversation about climate change has been stuck for years now. Everybody knows where they stand. Everybody's heard all the arguments before. But some new things are happening out there. Our Pledge to You, a program about climate change, and we will not mention solar panels, Eskimo fishing villages, polar bears, polar ice caps, the word Greenland. That's this week. Friday mornings at 3 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The United States rate of incarceration is highest in the world. Why and how did this happen and what can be done? What should be done? What are the reforms um, that uh, advocates are, are asking for? We're going to get into that to part of the discussion. My guests are authors of a new book, Race to Incarcerate, a graphic retelling. This is a graphic updating of an important book from 1999 understanding the exponential growth of the U.S. prison system and its effects not only on prisoners but on America in general. And uh, Mark Maurer is with us. He's executive director of the Sentencing Project. He'll be appearing at Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock. Sabrina Jones is a graphic artist, part of the World War III Illustrated Collective, author of politically engaged comics, and she updated the book. Race to Incarcerate a Graphic Retelling is uh, the book. Mark Maurer and uh, Sabrina Jones, my guests uh, for the hour. Uh, here's how the last chapter in the book uh, starts. We have this picture of this, uh, this, this beast, uh, that is the prison system, these high rates of incarceration. Uh, and then it says, for 40 years, the United States has been in a race to incarcerate. At best, world record incarceration has had a modest and increasingly diminishing effect on crime. And then it says, don't feed the beast. That's part of the illustration. A new direction is the chapter. Other nations have achieved lower rates of violence without locking up huge numbers of their citizens. It did not have to be this way, and there is a way out uh, Mark Maurer, what are some of the remedies that you see? We're beginning to see some changes in the court system and sentencing policies. Uh, there's about 20 years now we've had the uh, sort of adoption of, of drug courts around the country, and this is based on a fairly simple premise that, you know, if the underlying problem is a person's uh, substance abuse addiction, um, why don't we try treatment as a first option rather than incarceration as a first option? And there are now some 2,500 such drug courts around the country. Um, overall, I think it's fair to say that the evidence shows that the well-run drug courts are able to achieve some success in reducing rates of drug abuse and reducing subsequent crime. Uh, their ability to affect the prison population depends in part on which kinds of defendants they uh, enter into the programs. But, you know, these approaches have been embraced by judges and communities alike, and I think uh, seem to me a good recognition that uh, the public is not nearly as monolithically tough on crime as sometimes made out to be, that when we provide reasonable alternatives, uh, we can often see a very uh, positive response. People are looking for uh, different approaches that work to reduce crime. You, uh, in this section of the book, Mark Maurer, you, you say we need to tear down the artificial barriers between victims and offenders. What do you mean there? Well, we, I think for too long, uh, you know, our public discussion of these things has, you know, viewed people as either pro-victim or pro-offender. And, you know, I'm a person who's worked for several decades now on prison issues, and I care a lot about what happens in prison, but I've also been victimized by crime. I have close friends and relatives, some of whom have been victimized by serious violent crime. And uh, I don't see any need or to separate out those experiences. I think, you know, my experiences as a victim play into my understanding of what I think we should do in public safety, just as my visits to prison play into that as well. And so I think we want to explore, you know, how we get everyone sitting around the table. How do we hear the experiences of voices of victims? How do we hear the uh, experiences of people who work in the system, the communities that are affected by this most heavily, um, you know, that needs to be the conversation. And I think we can do that constructively as opposed to, you know, if it's a political soundbite debate, um, that doesn't get us very far. Sabrina Jones, I wonder, as you've engaged in this issue, I wonder what some of the solutions that you're seeing. 
Um, my solution, certainly as a, as a content provider, artist, you know, is to try to combat the fear and the alienation that people experience from some of the more sensational kinds of mass media. Because, and it's that sense always that the perpetrator is some kind of alien, other beast, you know, not one of ours gone astray, that it allows people to respond with this highly punitive, uh, you know, responses. Um, and it may be also a question of breaking down of community, um, that people get their sense of the world uh, more from commercial media. Um, so that uh, when somebody tells that there are a lot of people that believe that uh, crime rates are much higher now than they were uh, when we were children. And um, statistics prove that that's not true. It's just that they're reported much more frequently on the endless cycle of sensational cable media news. So this kind of document that we're producing is just to try to slow people down and get them to see things a little more rationally and uh, to humanize uh, both sides of the problem because uh, it's the out-of-control fear and alienation that has given us the out-of-control prison population. Hmm. And also near the end of the book here, this is an interesting quote. Most of us refrain from committing crimes each day not out of fear of punishment, but because we have better things to do. Families, communities, careers, and a sense of hope in the future work wonders in crime control in most cases. So Mark Maurer, this, this families, communities, careers, sense of hope, that we need to build that. Yeah, I think very much so. Uh, you know, basically, I woke up this morning and I sort of had two choices. I could have, you know, gone out on the street corner and tried to sell drugs, or I could come to my uh, job that I enjoy very much and feel very productive about. Um, and, of course, you know, I chose to go to the job. And I think most people with good opportunities will naturally gravitate towards that. Uh, so I think part of what we need to do as a society is to uh, figure out how do we create broader opportunities Opportunity for all. There are far too many people, uh, you know, who are growing up in uh, very beleaguered neighborhoods with uh, often substandard education, don't have either the formal or informal connections to the world of work. Um, you know, and that's a problem for all of us. You know, if we don't provide those opportunities, uh, we are going to see uh, some of those people ending up in the justice system. And, uh, you know, that's, that just puts people on a path, uh, you know, that gets them even even further away from the legitimate economy. Mark Barron, Sabrina Jones, you talk about restorative justice a bit in the book. What if you talk a bit about that, what you hope can be done in that area? Well, restorative justice is, is, is an idea that basically uh, says, you know, uh, crime is something that happens between two, two parties in most of the time. So uh, someone breaks into my home and steals a TV or uh, might steal a car or something like that. Uh, so I'm a victim. I've been victimized by that, and somebody has committed that. When people go into court, uh, we determine guilt or innocence, but we often don't repair the harm that's been done to the victim. And so the idea behind restorative justice is how do we hold the offender accountable while also trying to help repair the harm to the victim? So. You know, in the case of property crime, there are many programs that actually bring together victims and offenders where uh, a resolution has to come about whereby the offender, first of all, should uh, come to realize that he or she has committed harm against another person, but also can they pay back the cost of the damage that was done, uh, either financially or through some type of work obligation. For the victim, there can often be satisfaction, understanding, you know, why was it my house, what did I do wrong, if anything, uh, to try to get, uh, become more whole as well, both getting financial restitution, but also understanding that they, this didn't come out of the blue, that there are circumstances that contribute to that. And so we're seeing this now. Originally, this was adopted by many religious groups, uh, many court systems, even police departments are taking on this approach now, too, and viewing it uh, as uh, adding a whole new element to what we don't normally see in the court process. What are uh, your top one or two policy goals you'd like to see changed? 
Well, I think our whole sentencing policy has been far too focused on so-called tough sentencing, the you know, uh, large expansion of mandatory sentencing in particular, which says to judge, you know, this is a one-size-fits-all system now. If a person has this quantity of drugs or this much dollar amount of the crime, you've got to put them in prison for 5, 10, 20 years, whatever it may be. And, you know, you can talk to any judge in the country, whether they're a liberal or a conservative, and they will all tell you that, um, you know, I don't have any problem putting people in prison when it's necessary for public safety, but no two cases are ever alike, and that's why we have judges to make those kinds of distinctions. Uh, what mandatory sentencing has done is really just, uh, you know, pushed us in a far too punitive approach where we take that power away from judges, and I think in many cases uh, it results in injustices. You know, the case uh, that Sabrina talked about, Kemba Smith, yes, she had done some things wrong. Did she do 24 years' worth of wrong things? Um, you know, I certainly don't think it was anywhere near that scale, but that's what mandatory sentencing has made us do. And it's also shifted yes. that uh, the power from the judge to the prosecutor in many cases. Hmm. Just to have less than a minute uh, left, um, and uh, last question to Sabrina Jones. This mm-hmm. form of the book, a, a graphic uh, form, I assume you're going for younger people. What, what do you hope uh, the audience is? Well, I certainly don't want to rule out any older people, but it's <laughs> true that there is a, a strong youth market for comics, and uh, the younger people we can re- reach them, the more likely we are to have an impact on their views worldwide, you know, or lifelong, I should say. Um, so this is not always the kind of comics that everybody thinks uh, they're looking for when they're a comics fan, and yet uh, the combination of art and uh, and image and art and words is something that uh, that seems to disarm and and reach people who might not otherwise be open-minded. I find often that um, the uh, uh, merely the mention of comic book, somebody's eyes will light up who might not otherwise be listening to me very well. <laughs> so, we'll leave it there. The uh, medium it's, has an inherent appeal that I hope is, is well used in this case because I would really like to see this get into the hands of teachers and activists as well as policymakers. Uh, and we'll uh, end it there. Sabrina Jones and Mark Maurer, they're, uh, they've collaborated on the, an updating of Mark Maurer's 1999 book, Race to Incarcerate. The new book's called Race to Incarcerate, a graphic retelling. And uh, Mark Maurer is executive director of Sensi Project. He'll appear at Weller Bookworks in Salt Lake City tomorrow evening at uh, 7 o'clock. And Mark Maurer and Sabrina Jones have been my guests for the hour. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much, Tom. And uh, you are welcome to uh, still comment. You can do that at our website, upr.org. And for producer Addison Pace, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.